ECC family, if, you are, uh, if you're feeling up to it, I'm going to ask if you'll just stand with me as we read the passion of, uh, passage of Scripture that we've been studying through these past few weeks and continue for a couple more. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 5, it says this, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, as we've studied, goodness. And to goodness, as last week we went through, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Heavenly Father, as we dive deep into your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive from you. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is here to teach us, to counsel us, and to guide us. Can you give us open ears to hear you, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to ask you this morning, what comes to mind when you hear the word self-control? Self-control. We've probably all had the words spoken to us at some point, probably often in childhood and teenage years, and probably if we're married a lot from our spouse, control yourself. What does it mean to control yourself, self-control. Perhaps you're like me and what comes to mind is resisting urges or temptations. Don't eat that donut. Don't eat it. Don't look at that picture. Stay focused on your homework and study. Keep up with your workout or practice schedule. Don't say that comment. You're going to regret it if you do. Control yourself. Peter talks about we're to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. I want us to, to help define and really understand what this term means that Peter uses here. What it means to control ourselves. Webster's Dictionary of Self-Control says this, it's a restraint exercised over one's own impulses their emotions or desires. The Greek word here that we find that says self-control is a noun used only one other time in the New Testament. Paul uses it when he lists the fruit of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5:23. It's the only other time we see in all the New Testament this word used. Author Mark Buchanan wrote the, the book Hidden in Plain Sight. It's a, it's a book that we've referenced through this series. And he writes this, he says, Biblically, self-control is more than keeping in check our animal instincts or our primitive urges. Its very essence is actually humility because it has mostly to do with our minds. It is a trained capacity to think clearly about what matters most. It's a disciplined attentiveness to what God has done and is doing. And it is a heightened sensitivity to spiritual reality, including a shrewd awareness of how the devil seeks to play havoc with us. Self-control is really about paying attention. Before it's the strength to hold yourself back, it's the ability to see without distraction or illusion what's really going on and the wisdom to act in light of it. 
Again, so far in our series, we read that to our faith we are to add goodness and to that knowledge. And to this very knowledge that we spoke about last week, self-control. You may read this verse and see it as a random grouping of things kind of piled together of have these somewhere in your backpack. But I see Peter actually being very deliberate and these, these virtues being put really in a, in a purposeful progression. It's not by coincidence. But Peter's laying them out with great purpose. True self-control is not simply having more restraint. Rather, it is, as we read there, a trained capacity to think clearly about what matters most. True self-control, as Peter would point out, is only born out of true knowledge. That's why we're to add, first have knowledge and then add to knowledge self-control. It is a discipline of the mind and character to not be controlled merely by our impulses or our emotion or our own selfish viewpoints. It's birthed out of a yielding of the knowledge of truth and choosing to operate out of that viewpoint. It's ironic in some way that the term self-control, which to many of us would be about us grabbing and taking the bull by the horns, is actually truly yielding yourself. Self-control, as the way many of us would define it, as culture would define it, is completely against the bulk of what the New Testament teaches us about the life of a Christ follower. See, the life of a Christ follower and being more like Jesus is not about self-mastery. It's not about me somehow attaining and me somehow conniving and using my strength to make something happen and turn it good. We see the exact opposite throughout the entirety of Scripture. Rather, self-control here in what Peter is trying to share with us and encourage us with speaks to choosing the opposite of that. Because self-mastery is all about me. And with that, it's all about my needs, my views, my wants. It feeds into the cultural narrative that many of us drown in every day of excess and greed. As I was preparing to speak this morning, God put on my heart, I think, a good illustration in, um, to understand truly how self-control can work in the life of a Christ follower. Someone who is supposed to be defined by humility, and rather than being their own leader, are supposed to come under the leadership of Christ. And I think of self-control similar to someone who flies a kite or Someone who goes out windsurfing. Now, there's a picture on the screen there. So you can tell that's me. Uh, I have gone windsurfing once in my life. When I was in high school, in grade 12, they had a class, believe it or not, in my high school called Advanced Physical Education. Advanced Physical Education. Like, the name itself sounds ridiculous. Because if you're really good at dodgeball, you get to go to the advanced class. <laughs> really all it was, was uh, it was, it was a PE class where there was a bunch of us who played athletics um, in grade 12. We're on teams, uh, pretty much everybody who was in the course. 
An advanced physical education meant that when we'd have double block periods, we got to go on field trips and we got to do different sports outside of school. So, get out of school? Yeah, I took advanced PE in grade 12. So one day we went and we did windsurfing. Now, this picture of windsurfing in no way reflects my experience of windsurfing. It was, I believe we chose the end of January to go windsurfing. I grew up around Vancouver, so I grew up in Surrey, so we drove to Vancouver, went to the harbor, put on our wetsuits, which they assured us would make us feel warm in the water. They lied. It was freezing. It was about three degrees, and so it was a mixture of rain and snow that was going down one of the few days in Vancouver that had that, and there was major wind gusts. But here we are, these grade 12 students going out to try and windsurf. It is not as relaxing as they make it seem when you, if you watch a video of some windsurfing where they just like ride away. It took me over an hour just to get the thing up out of the water because you have to balance yourself. The wind's blowing, the water's shaking. It was ridiculous. It was not at all enjoyable. But if you'll bear with me, outside of the fact that you know I'm a horrible windsurfer, I, I want to tell you how, how God kind of brought this to mind of how windsurfing is very similar to self-control and how it works in our lives. See, if you were today to go on and go out and go windsurfing, there is nothing you could do in your own physical power and planning to actually make that board move and coast along the water. You couldn't, with your strength, push yourself and propel yourself along the water. You couldn't, with your intellect, outsmart the board and somehow, you know, have an argument with it and make it go along the water. Rather, it's called windsurfing because the key is the wind. The wind is what propels and moves forward. Self-control is a way of mastering life is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. When you go on a windsurfing board, the wind propels you, and that's similar to in our lives. The Holy Spirit in our lives is what actually gives us life and ability to move forward in becoming more like Jesus and attaining the goals and the goodness that he has for us. Rather, your discipline or your self-control in windsurfing is you learn how to balance on the board. You learn how to move the sail to be able to catch the wind that is going to move you forward. In your life and my life, we still have choice to choose to be obedient to God, to put ourselves in the positions of what God has asked us to be, to stay balanced in his word daily, in prayer and staying connected with him, and to position our lives in a way that's in accordance to what he's asked for us to be so that we can catch the wind of the Holy Spirit in our lives who moves us forward. To somehow feel that we can, in our own strength, control and make ourselves more like Jesus. Or somehow, if you aren't a Christ follower, believe that you can make your life better simply by your will, by your own discipline and by your own strength is a fool's game. For those who struggle with addiction, you know very well what it means to try and simply change it by your will, to white-knuckle it, if you will, to just try harder. 
doesn't work. It's not simply a matter of your will. And in fact, as science has progressed, we're finding that new research and new neurological research proves what Scripture has taught us all along. See, neuroscientists, those who study the brain, have discovered a, a, a lot in the past few years that helps us to understand addiction. When you have a thought or form a thought in your life, there are neurons in your brain that fire back and forth. I'm not Harvey, so this is my best Harvey impression here. I'm going <laughs> to give you a little science here. And he'll correct whatever I, make wrong, I do wrong here at the end. But, but when I, when I um, went to university and, and was uh, studying, doing a counseling degree, we, we did some, a few courses on this. And, and the neurons in your brain, when you have a new thought, they fire back and forth. And in that, there is actually physical ramifications inside the forming of your brain. When you have a thought over and over and over and over again, it actually makes essentially a physical imprint on your brain. And with that, your brain naturally finds these neural pathways, these little highways in your brain that form clearer and clearer. And the more consistent you've done it, the more defined it is in your brain. It's, and this is where people who have addictions, where they, they tie into something and they can't get out of it. Whether it's they, they have a substance addiction or they have an addiction of thoughts, or those who have a pornography addiction, to actually understand what underlines some of the physical things that underline your addiction as you've allowed those things to exist in your life over a long period of time. It changes your brain. And it's similar to in the winter when you've had a large snowfall. And over the next few days, your residential road, your, your little side street, there's the big truck that goes out first and makes nice big tire prints. And then everybody else for the next couple days drives along the same path because you want to make sure your Toyota Corolla doesn't bottom out. And over a few days, that, those, those little ruts, they become harder and firmer and more solid, essentially like ice. So that a week later, when you try and make a new path, your tires naturally just keep sliding back into those indents. It's similar to what happens to our brains. These, neuro, these little neural pathways become so indented that even when you decide you don't want to do something the same, you get sucked right back into the same thing. You end up doing the same habit. Simply trying to control or thinking that by your will you will change things doesn't work. There are literally millions of people around the world that can testify this in their own lives where they genuinely do not want to do what they're doing. Paul speaks about that. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, I do want to do, I don't, or I, I don't do, I want to do. There are many people who don't want to be addicted to things, but are. They can't get out of it. Yet, that's not a life without hope. Romans 12, 2 says this. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, here's the other thing that neuroscience has, has taught us over the last few years and really echoes what Scripture already teaches us. That when you have a new way of thinking brought into the mind... 
when lies that have been believed in the past and reflected in actions, when new ways of thinking are brought in, those neurons can help begin to fire again and make new pathways. They can make new tire tracks, new ways of doing things. And we see this in Scripture that that's done by God's Word, His truth, His, as we go back to this passage of Scripture, the knowledge that we're to add to our faith. And when we've added knowledge, that gives us the capacity and ability to have self-control. Because we now have a new way of understanding and a new way of looking, and when we allow that to dictate what we're going to do, when we truly allow that to sink in, and to fight and to change the way that we look at things, it's going to give us the capacity to change. Does this make sense? God's Word is powerful, and it can actually get us out of destructive patterns that we can't control ourselves. When these new ways of thinking are introduced, neurons can begin firing new neural pathways. A true biblical ethic sees self-control as the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in us. It's the result of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us, changing us, God's Word renewing our mind, the Holy Spirit illuminating or bringing it to life, making it real for us. You don't physically push or force your sailboat forward. You exercise discipline to harness the wind to propel you forward. You stay balanced on the board and upright. You stay balanced by knowing God's will, what his truth is, and allowing that to dictate how you see the world rather than your own emotion and your own point of view. The Holy Spirit is the wind in our sails that actually empowers us to move forward. And as we, as we have this knowledge of God's truth, self-control helps us to stay in place where God wants us and keep us balanced. Now, in the, in the book of 2 Peter, this is the only time Peter speaks of self-control. But in the book of 1 Peter, he refers to self-control three different times. This morning, as, as we continue just to flesh out what it means to be self-controlled, I want to quickly look at these three passages and what they have to teach us of, of this virtue of being self-controlled. So the first is in 1 Peter 1. So if you have your Bibles, just flip forward. You're in 2 Peter. Flip to 1 Peter. A few pages forward. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 13. It says this. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the grace of salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. This, this passage starts with the word so, or depending on the translation you're in, the first word in verse 13 might say therefore. And it's linking us to the previous passage of what Peter mentions as he talks about salvation, the gift of salvation that has been given for mankind. It's the greatest gift ever given. 
As Scripture presents it, salvation is the greatest longing and need of all humanity. Everything you could want or need is made right, complete, and whole through God's gifts of His Son and salvation, the freedom from sin and right relationship with God. It's what generations before Jesus' time had longed for and prophets had prophesied about. Now, with this, this extravagant gift of salvation, don't you think the response to receiving salvation in Jesus, don't you think that Peter's response would be jump, shout for joy, rejoice, celebrate, wildly dance down the street? Yet what we see here Peter's direction is prepare yourself in response to salvation. Prepare yourself and exercise self-control. I like uh, Mark Buchanan in his book. He says, this is kind of the equivalent of winning a million dollars in the lottery and your mom telling you to wash your laundry and make sure that you brush your teeth in the morning. It doesn't seem like a response that really lines up. Self-control seems like an embarrassingly muted response to such a lavish windfall of salvation. Why would Peter's response seem to be so downplayed, so muted? Prepare yourself. Be self-controlled. For those of you who have been in church for years, think back to a story that Jesus talked about, the parable of the sower. There's a sower of seed, and it talks about how the seed was scattered on different types of soil, and some was rocky, some was, some was filled with weeds, some was shallow, some fell on good soil. We see that there was, there was seeds that were sown in, in what they called shallow soil. So quickly the seed took root and a plant grew up. But because the soil was so shallow, the seed had no roots. It was a parable, an illustration to explain those who will hear about Jesus, hear about what he offers, hear about salvation, and in that, they quickly respond, yes. But instead of having something of significance in relationship with Jesus, they run off of the adrenaline. It's those who maybe in church respond to an opportunity to receive Jesus in their life and have a few weeks or a few months of an adrenaline rush but it burns off because there's no roots in their life. There's no self-control. There's no true, clear picture of understanding what is available to them, who Jesus is and what he wants and desires for their life. And with that, there's no roots that take place. And this is why Peter goes on to say that self-control has a clear purpose, to make us holy as God is holy. This virtue does not exist for its own sake. Self-control guards a treasure that's been put in us, God's great salvation. And it produces something of great wealth, God's holiness in us. True self-control keeps us from getting on emotional highs and it roots us in truth. Self-control keeps us rooted in the ever-ongoing process of a Christian called sanctification, or becoming more like Jesus. 
If you respond and receive God's salvation, right away you are forgiven of your sin in that moment that you make that decision. But there is an ongoing process in your life of becoming more like Jesus. None of us here are perfect, but hopefully every day God is shaping us by us yielding to him to become more like him. Self-control is part of the good soil that helps build deep roots, builds character, and makes us stable in our walk with Christ. So from this passage, if I can summarize, self-control helps us keep our eyes on what is truly important and helps us to become more like him. It's no coincidence that the virtue that we're going to study next week that follows self-control is perseverance. Because when we are self-controlled, when we yield to God, when we take that and we discipline ourselves according to the truth that God reveals to us, it gives us the perseverance to endure hardships, the longevity of difficulty in life. Second passage we see in, in 1 Peter that helps again give us another definition, another understanding of, of self-control is 1 Peter 4, 7. It says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and exercise self-control and be of sober mind or clear-minded so that you may pray. So be alert, or could also be translated as be self-controlled. The end of all is near. Be prepared and aware. Expect it's coming. Peter here is talking about the end of the world, literally. The end of this earth, a time we see spoken about in the scripture of extreme destruction and famine, earthquakes, pestilence, wars, and death just makes you feel happy and excited inside. And yet as terrible as it is, we're to look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. For out of this wholesale destruction is going to come a new heaven and a new earth. Before this day comes, we need to be ready. We do that by being clear-minded and self-controlled. It's just like any great battle. We must prepare ourselves. And how do we prepare? We see in this passage very clearly, we pray. We don't stand on a soapbox and yell at people. We don't build up mighty empires with great armies and wealth to be able to fight those who are going to fight against us. We don't bury four 60-foot buses filled with rations in an underground bunker to be able to survive the apocalypse very first church I pastored at, I lived at a house that did that. But that's not how we're supposed to react. We're supposed to pray. To pray is to truly go to the source of all truth, all power, and all life. And the discipline of prayer is just that. It is a discipline. It is a conscious choice. And this guideline of how to deal with life is not just about the coming of end times, but every facet of our life, we are to respond with prayer. In the midst of full expectation of the world being thrown in chaos and upheaval, Peter challenges us to pray. When all goes to chaos, prayer can be the last thing I want to do, if I'm honest with you. When things that really bother me happen, I would like to say that prayer is always my immediate turn of action. But there's still growth of self-control happening in my life. Because my natural reaction is to want to fix things. 
is to want to get out and change it. And I ask you, how do you face chaos in your life? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, before he said, give us this day our daily bread, he started with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. It was in that prayer itself a realignment of who is in charge and who is not. We need to learn to pray before we react. And I ask you what I need to constantly ask myself. Are you self-controlled in your life? What do you do when something falls apart? When you have a fight with your spouse? When you or someone in your family gets the diagnosis and it's not good? When you lose money in an investment? When your friend talks behind your back? Is your first move to pray? Don't go around fixing. Don't go around correcting or righting wrongs. Don't go around proving or pleading your case. Pray. Prayer will bring our mind back to realignment with God's vision and his heart. So if I can summarize what this passage has to teach us about self-control, the virtue of self-control... So that self-control helps us to pray and realign ourselves to what's important, not just to us, but to God. Finally, the third passage is in 1 Peter 5, 8. It says this, Discipline yourself or be self-controlled. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour. We read this in Scripture in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We need to recognize that there is an enemy who would love to take you out. But we need to stay self-disciplined, self-controlled, and stay focused. Know who is on your side. If you ran into the woods, if you were hiking in the mountains, and you ran into a bear or a cougar, the worst thing you could do is run. And the truth is for a lot of us, when we hit temptation and when we hit difficulty in life, when our enemy tries to attack us, many of us are petrified of Satan. And our natural inclination is like if we ran into a cougar or a bear in the woods and we run from them. A cougar or a bear is going to outrun you. You're not going to outrun them. And if you're out of shape like me, you're really not going to outrun them. But if you're trained and do it in in, in being in the woods regularly, you're to make yourself as big as you can, make a lot of loud noise, and scare them back. There's a a story here that that was shared in this book that we've been referring to by Mark Buchanan. And he talks about uh, a guy who trains Navy SEALs in the States. And it's a great illustration, and he had these people going out on a course. And he explains this. He, uh, he asked new participants to come out, and he explains that uh, he's going to have them go around the property, and the property's perimeter, they're supposed to grab a flag tied to a fence and run it back. But he says this, beware, the terrain is treacherous, venomous snakes, swampy bogs, stinging plants, and the occasional crocodile out there. And one more thing, a wild boar has been spotted in the area, and the beasts are vicious, unpredictable, territorial, and easily provoked. He then goes on to send different teams out, and he has a cameraman who's camouflaged and disguised, who's hiding in the bushes. And as these group of men come along in their training, he's to make noise, 
and should try and scare them to see how they're going to react. There's a group of NFL linebackers who go first. These big, burly linebackers, all weighing close to 300 pounds. And as they hear these rustles in the bushes of the boar, who's the cameraman, they, they panic, they freak, and they run. The next group is a group of CIA operatives, and as they come, they hear the rustling in the bushes, and they all move into fighting mode, ready to attack what comes out of the bush. See, one of those groups of men, there, there wasn't a difference of one being stronger, but what there was a difference was, was a training and expectation to be prepared for an enemy and for attack. And in your life and in my life, we have to be prepared that we have an enemy who is after your soul and is after mine. And we need to be self-controlled, preparing ourselves for that. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What do you do when the enemy attacks you? When your health is out the window? When your spouse seems to crumble and your marriage is teetering? When your kids take the life of a prodigal? When work dries up? Or when friends no longer call? When the doctor says it's cancer? How do you respond? The enemy is actively seeking to take you out. Whether you want to acknowledge his presence or not, we need to stay self-controlled and disciplined to not fall victims to his traps, his traps of self-blame and shame, where he gets you to attack yourself. The attacks and traps of jealousy and anger towards others blaming others, Christians and non-Christians, as the enemy rather than the true enemy of your souls. We need to know who our enemy is and we need to be prepared for battle against him. Ephesians 6 encourages us that we're to take the shield of faith, which helps us to ward off the enemy's fiery darts. We need to know truth and we need to, we need to stay dedicated to remembering it. Don't retreat and run away. Stand up and fight. So we read again in that passage of Ephesians that talks about the armor of God. All the armor is for the front of you and there's nothing on your back. We're never called to retreat and run from the enemy. Rather, we're to pursue and chase him down and defeat him. So self-control from this passage we see helps us to stay clear on who the enemy is, resist his attacks, and keep faith. So if I can quickly as I close this morning, as you'll see on the screen in front of you, I quickly want to just summarize how we've defined this virtue in our lives, self-control. Self-control is a trained capacity to think clearly about what matters most. It is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in us. It is the wind and the sails that helps us to move forward. And with that, self-control helps us to keep our eyes on what is truly important and helps us to become more like Jesus. Self-control helps us to pray and realign ourselves to what's important to God, not just us. And finally, self-control helps us to stay clear on who the enemy is, resist his attacks, and keep faith. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand as I close in prayer this morning. As you pray with me, I want to pray for some of you today that perhaps the issue of self-control is a big one in your life. And you've never thought about it this way. But some of you I know this morning are dealing specifically with addictions that have taken over your life and have still been kept secret. God wants you to help get control of that again through his spirit. 
Some of you have lost perspective and in that your faith has become so numbed because while you say in, in, in with your mouth occasionally of how you follow Jesus, the truth is that your life is not at all a reflection of that. You are truthfully ruled by you. A worldly understanding of self-control. And you don't have that real knowledge of God's truth for you. Maybe you've heard it before, but you've never actually had it actually sink into your own heart and guide your life. And God wants to bring healing and freedom for you in that. So I'm going to pray. And if this is you today, I'm going to ask that you just have an open heart to receive from God. Because I believe that there is healing and wholeness and life available to you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us faith. We can't know you even without the grace you've given us to have faith to start with. God, and in that you've called us and given, called us to goodness. And you give us the capacity to do that, to begin to reflect to you. And with that, you've given us knowledge. God, you've poured into us and given us in your word the truth that's helped to dictate us. Your Holy Spirit is here to be able to speak to us, and I pray even now, and some of us is just revealing that to us, your truth, and bringing it to life within our own hearts and lives. And then that, you've called us to be self-controlled. And so I pray for those of us this morning that recognize and are convicted in our own hearts today, God, would you forgive us? God, forgive me where I have been Self-reliant, not self-controlled. Where I haven't allowed the truth and the knowledge of who you are to impact the real realities of how I live. God, I pray right now for those who struggle with addiction, Lord, that has come in, those who they know that their marriage has been impacted by their pornography addiction, those who have substance addictions that they have used things to become to somehow numb or to try to be happy because on their own they can't. God, I pray today that they would receive a wholeness in you and a, and a supernatural healing from that in the name of Jesus. God, and I pray against the enemy of our souls who has so tried so hard to try and break down, try to steal, to try to kill, and to try to destroy. God, I pray a breaking on that. And no longer are we going to run, but I pray that your word would come alive to us today to remind us of who we are in you, that we are chosen, that we are called, that we are forgiven. God, and we are empowered to live this life for you, Jesus, to live life in wholeness, in freedom. I pray that that would be true. For those of us who need healing and forgiveness today, I pray, God, right now, in Jesus' name, may that happen. And this week, may you focus our eyes and change our perspective to recognize, God, that you've called us into something great. Can you help us from fumbling and bumbling, trying to get the sail up and trying to stay balanced on our board? Can you remind us again that it's not by our force, it's not by our might, not by our power, but it's, as your word says, by your spirit. God, that you can empower us to live the life that we know within the depths of our being we're called to. And we feel dissatisfied because we know we're not. So I pray that today. Empower us and use us this week so that we can share the true message, the true hope, love, forgiveness, and freedom of Jesus with the world around us. I pray this now. And if you agree with me, say amen. Amen.